the significance of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're still going to be talking about resurrection because Easter, I don't know if you knew this, new memo for you, Easter is actually a 50-day season in the church calendar. It's longer than Lent. Lent is a 40-day season, and Easter gets 10 more days because it's that much cooler. And uh, resurrection is really the theme that we celebrate every Sunday. The Jewish people from... Jesus was a Jew and he grew up Jewish. They worship God on Saturdays, uh, the last day of the week. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead on a Sunday. And that fundamentally changed the orientation of their worship. The Messiah had come, the Savior had come. And so they started praising God, worshiping God on the first day of the week, on Sunday instead of Saturday. It was a radical transformation. And so every Sunday is a celebration of resurrection. And what's interesting is that Sunday is the first day of the week. We, I typically think of it in my brain as the last day of the week. It's like the last time, day of week, and Monday is the first day of week. But officially, Sunday is actually the first day of the week. And Jesus rises from the dead after Saturday, after the Jewish Sabbath, which is the last day of the week. And Sunday is the first day of the week. And this is uh, symbolic and real in so many ways that on the first day of the week, Jesus rises from the dead. And where do we find him? One of the first sightings of, of Jesus is in the garden. So he shows up in the gardener and the women confuse him for the gardener. Do you remember that? They confuse him for the gardener on the first day of the week. And we talk about that we were saved from... The power of resurrection saves us from the power of sin, both the sins that we have committed that have separated us from God, that have done harm to other people, and we've all committed sin, right? Raise your hand if you've committed sin. Let's all do it. Come on, I got two hands up and a foot. And it's hot in here, and we can all smell, and that's because of sin too. So we, we, we are separated from God by the sins that we've committed. We're separated from one another because of the sins we've committed. But the resurrection breaks the power of that sin and enables us to be reunited with God, reunited with one another, and even reunited with creation so that we can have a right relationship with all three of these broken relationships. And the power of the resurrection also breaks the power of death. Or actually, no, let me say, not only the sins we've committed, but the sins committed against us. And that's huge. We need to hear that. Because all of us are wounded by sins that have been committed against us. We have, uh, in our childhood, no parent is perfect, and some parents are way less perfect than others, right? But all of us have wounds from our parents. And we all have wounds from other people that have, that have wounded us. Abuse, neglect, um, being ignored, being shamed, and these sins committed against us threaten to define our lives, and they define our lives in a lot of ways, and they define a lot of people's lives, right? The things that were done to us, the wounds that we carry, cause us to carry them forward the rest of our life, and we begin to be defined by our wounds, by the sins committed against us. But the good news of resurrection is, like we talked about last week, is that the power of the sins committed against us, they don't have to define us. The abuse that you receive does not have to define you. That doesn't mean you don't have to work through it, 
but the Holy Spirit breaks the bond, the, the, the grip that that defining sin has on you, that was committed against you, and that drives us to our addictions, that drives us to the ways that we cope. The resurrecting power at work in us that is unleashed in resurrection breaks the power of sin. And now I'm getting back to the garden, right? It also breaks the power of death, right? Which the, when, when death killed God, death died and stayed dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, death was left in the grave. He couldn't come up with him. And so the sting of death is dead. And we can live without the fear of death but Jesus raises from the garden. And in the garden, he's his first sighting on the first day of the week. And what does this all speak of? It really speaks of new creation, new beginning, a fresh start. So what happened on the cross when Jesus was crucified and buried, the old world was dead. It was the end of the old world. And when Jesus rose from the dead is the beginning of the new world, of new possibilities, of new beginnings, of new creation, of the renewal and the restoration and the redemption of all things. And so Jesus rises from the dead on the first day. That wasn't even in my notes, so it's going to be a long sermon. And it's hot. No, I'm just kidding. It won't be. That was all in my notes. It's cool. All right, so continue. And I hope this works. Yes. There, see, there's my notes. This day and next week, we're going to continue to celebrate resurrection and the effect of resurrection. Not only the power over sin, the power over death, and the power that it saves us to mission, new creation mission. Uh, we've got these six effects that I want to talk about, and we'll talk about the first two or three this week and then hit the next, next week. But we're going to talk about the faithfulness of God realized, right? Jesus' glory is revealed by means of the resurrection, that the power of the Spirit is released and unleashed in our lives. And then next week we're going to talk about a new community being created, which, by the way, is you all. This new, create, this new community is created. This new family is the result of resurrection. And then political powers are challenged and upturned and overthrown and it th- throws everything into uh, chaos in a lot of ways, the world is turned upside down politically, and then the cosmos is redeemed or reordered. See, salvation and the effect of resurrection that Jesus rose from the dead isn't just about individual humans being reconciled to, a, to God and heaven um, being a place we escape from the earth, but God is actually redeeming the whole world, not just earth, but the whole cosmos. This is like cosmic in its scope. It's huge. So we'll talk about that. So the first three this time, and I'm going to cough. <coughs> I got a cold. All right. So I want to talk about the faithfulness of God is realized as a result of resurrection. The faithfulness of God is realized. Have you guys uh, seen this movie or read this book? The Faithful Elephant. Horton. Horton hears the who. Horton hatches an egg. Um, He says, what does he say? He makes a promise and he says, I meant what I said. I said what I meant. An elephant is faithful 100%, right? And he he sits on, in the book, he sits on that egg, rain, wind, winter, rain, what's that term? Rain, wind, summer, shine, whatever. Yeah, through all kinds of conditions. 
And Horton is faithful no matter what, 100%. What the resurrection of Jesus from the dead says is that God is a faithful God, that God meant what He said, said what He meant, and He is faithful 100%. Now this goes in in and out of doubt sometimes throughout history, right? As things get crazy, we forget this. We doubt God. Is He really 100% faithful? Did He really mean what He said for my life, for the world? Like, is this true? And at resurrection, we're reminded that God is faithful, that He did mean what He says, and He says what He meant, and He's faithful 100%. And we're reminded of that, and it's a, it's a stake in history that says God is real and He's faithful. And so here's a quote moving from Dr. Seuss to a theologian from uh, Princeton. He says, God's raising of the crucified Jesus to new life is God's concrete confirmation. His his proof of the promise that evil will finally be defeated and justice will reign throughout God's creation. So the resurrection of God to life is the realization that God is going to be faithful to carry forward His promise, that the world is going to be made right, that wrongs will be made right, that the curse of sin and death is going to be reversed, that the cause of pain and suffering is going to be um, redeemed, that God is going to redeem our suffering. So let me take you back to Genesis 3.15. This is called the the gospel, the pre-gospel, the proto-evangelion. Genesis 3.15, the first book of the Bible, where the story starts, right? All, everything is perfect. God makes everything wonderful. Creation is beautiful. There's shalom, wellness in all directions, and Adam and Eve, um, human, representatives of humanity, say, now, I'm good. I want to do things my way. They rebel against God. They take the fruit. All the seeds of sin, death, destruction, famine, genocide, sweep into the world and the world is never the same. Disorientation, right? For millennia. Well, in the moment of that disorientation, into the darkest moment of human history, God speaks a promise. He speaks hope. He speaks good news, gospel. And this is what it says. He's speaking to the snake here, okay, Satan. He says, from now on, you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, will be enemies. <coughs> and your offspring, your children, and her offspring, her children, will be enemies. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the prophecy, the first prophecy of the, of the Redeemer to come, of God's work to renew and restore and to redeem the world. And this is a prophecy of, of, of God in Jesus defeating Satan. And you see, at the, this is a picture of a statue. In most Catholic churches, you'll find a stary statue. Most, most Catholic churches, you'll find a statue of Mary somewhere, maybe a few. And usually, if you look at her feet, you'll find underneath her feet the head of a serpent being crushed. I never noticed that until one day I was at a Catholic church outside waiting for somebody, and I look at the feet, I'm like, whoa, that is awesome! 
That is awesome. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, marries, gives birth to the Savior of the world, and in so doing, crushes the head of Satan. Death, Satan, seemed to win, bit and bruised the heel of Christ at the cross, but when he rose from the dead, the head of the serpent was crushed. And there is God's faithfulness at resurrection to redeem the world. And so he says that I'm not going to leave the world a dark place. I'm not going to leave it to spiral out of control. I'm going to step into the pain, step into the disorientation, step into the madness, step into the chaos, and bring life. And he does it. And so through resurrection, there's hope. Through resurrection, the faithfulness of God is realized. So what this does, in the resurrection, God says yes to humanity, and he says yes to the world. On the cross, humanity and the world and all the violence, all the sin, all the greed, issued a verdict against God. And we said, no. We say, we reject you. We reject the Savior. We reject God. We reject all that you are. And the Son of God was crucified. The verdict of the world against God was no. But in the resurrection, the verdict of God, he flips it. The verdict of God on the world and humanity is yes. He responds with the no with, to the no with a yes. He responds to, the, to the, the violence and the death with life. It's a reversal. And so uh, the resurrection of Jesus is the verdict of God the Father that says yes to the world. And it alters the human condition forever. The world can never be the same because we cannot escape God's love. We cannot outrun it. We cannot outrebel it. God pursues us and He's with us. And so personal implications here for us. Let's bring it down. What does this mean for you? What does it mean for me that God is faithful and that God has said yes, even in the face of our no, even in the face of our rebellion? It means that no matter how defiantly you say no or resist God, you are not beyond God's yes in Jesus. That no matter how far you run, no matter how uh, far you um, get into your anger and you let your bitterness overtake your life, God's yes will not stop pursuing you. No matter how much you say no to God, no to peace with other people, God is going to continue to pursue you. He's not going to let you go. His yes will always come back to your no. And He won't let you go. Is that scary? That's good. So the, the drugs and the money and the sex that you're addicted to, no matter how, how deep you are in that stuff, it's not enough to push away the yes of God 
on your life. In the resurrection, He has affirmed your humanity. He has affirmed His love for you. He has affirmed that He is not going to let go, that He will go to any lengths to save you. So, the resurrection is our hope in God's faithfulness. His faithfulness is the realization of the fact that He is not going to give up on the world. And He's making all things new. And that goes for your family as well. If you have people or family members in your family that are resisting God or that are deep in addiction or are, are deep, just seem like they're spiraling out of control, that God will pursue them and His resurrecting power will not let them go. God is faithful. The next is Jesus' glory is revealed. Because of the resurrection, the true identity of Jesus is made known. See, He comes um, kind of in disguise, really. It's not so much that He's disguising Himself, but that He's disguised by people's expectations of Him, of what the Savior will be, of who God is supposed to what he's supposed to do and what he's supposed to be like. He's disguised by our expectations. And so he is finally, he's revealed for who he truly is in his resurrection. His glory is revealed. There's a game show that you probably know. Um, it was, it's To Tell the Truth. Is that what it was? The To Tell the Truth. And what, what this game show is like one of the longest running game shows next to The Price is Right, I think, as I looked it up on Wikipedia. And what this game show is, is that there's three people kind of on the stand, and the contestants um, have to determine which one has done this great, cool thing that only one of the contestants have done. So let me, let me make that more clear. One, there's uh, three contestants. One person is like a really cool dude. Like let's say he's Evil Knievel, all right? He's done all these motorcycle stunts and everything like that. And the people that are playing the game don't know the true identity of Evil Knievel, right? And so... There's one guy that's really evil Knievel, and there's two other guys pretending to be evil Knievel, and the contestants have to like ask him and figure it out. And at the end of the show, they say, will the real evil Knievel stand up? And all three of them kind of like fake it out, and then the real evil Knievel stands up. And they're like, oh, whoa, no way, cool. All right, so the resurrection is when the real Savior of the world stands up. That's where his true identity is revealed. That's where we discover that beyond all of the um, confusing disguise, all of his weakness, all of his rejection, the fact that he was crucified on a cross, that he comes from a poor uh, part of uh, Jerusalem, the, the, the land of Israel, he comes from nothing and he's nobody on the scale of history. The resurrection reveals him to be who he truly is the Savior of the world, the one who shares glory with God Himself, the one who is to be worshipped as God. And this is incredible, and this is revolutionary. So, there were many ideas of who Jesus was in the time of um, when He came, first century Palestine, right? They, the zealots thought that he, the Messiah would be someone who would uh, overthrow the Roman Empire through violence and revolt. So they wanted. They were like, "Let's do this. Let's get our knives. Let's get our. Let's let's declare war on the Roman Empire. Let's assassinate Hitler, or not Hitler, Caesar, and uh, we'll we'll get him." 
That's the zealous view of the Messiah. Jesus didn't match that, uh, that view. The, the, the Pharisees thought, well, the Messiah is going to be all about the purity, purity to the law. So we have to be pure. We have to obey the law just like that. And Messiah is going to restore perfect purity and obedience to the law. And so the Savior of the world is going to look like that. To the Romans... They thought Caesar was the savior of the world, that the savior of the world would be a general, there would be a mighty empire. And in fact, did you know that like on coins and stuff, it said Caesar is Lord. We say Jesus is Lord. When Jesus comes on the scene and he says Jesus is Lord, he's not the first one to say that. He's actually saying, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I am Lord. The Lord, the ruler, the one to bring peace to the world is not Caesar. The Roman Empire, they would, they would send people out to spread the good news, the evangelion of the Roman Empire throughout the world, that, that it was spreading peace. Caesar was also called the Prince of Peace. Did you know that? So Jesus, when he comes on the scene and he takes on these titles, that he is Lord, that he's Prince of Peace, that he brings good news of the kingdom of God, it all comes against the false good news, the false gospel of the Roman Empire that really did not bring peace, that really did not bring good news, that was only really good news for 1% of 1% of the people, and everyone else was suffering. So, their view of the Savior would be Caesar, would be the Roman Empire, would be uh, this good news. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, He doesn't fit any of these expectations. And we see this in Isaiah. It's not a surprise. This is a prophecy that comes concerning Jesus. It says there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. It's likely that Jesus didn't even have teeth. Most people, in, uh, by the time they hit 30 in the first century, ancient Near East, they're not rushed, they don't have toothpaste. It's likely, likely he didn't have teeth. Most people didn't live past 35, 40 years old. And so, anyways, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the bitterest of grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised, and we did not care. Does that sound like the Savior of the world? Does that like sound something like the real Savior? Please stand up. We're not expecting this guy. We're not expecting this guy. In, in uh, Philippians, it says the same thing, except it gives us the rest of the story Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant, took on the position of a humble slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. But here's the turn in the story. Because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is master is king so the identity 
of Jesus is made fully known in the resurrection, that he is elevated, he is made known to be the Son of God, the one whose name is above every name, the one who is superior to Caesar, the one who is going to bring the good news, the true good news, the true Prince of Peace, the one whom when, this is a radical, again, when the women find him in the garden after he's risen from the dead and he reveals himself to them, they fall down and worship at his feet. And this is crazy. You don't do this as Jewish women. First of all, you don't, do, you don't touch men as women. And second of all, as Jewish women, you do not worship anyone but God. Yahweh is the one true God. You do not worship him or else you get killed. But they fall down at his feet and worship Jesus as God, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, because He's risen from the dead. And it says that everyone will worship Him. This is all of our fate. I'm going to tell you your future. I can see into the future. This is your future. Whether you give your life to Jesus or not, all of us will fall at the feet of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the one by whom everything exists. Jesus is the one that made the world, that He is worthy of worship. That's our future. And so by resurrection, the true identity of Jesus, His true glory is revealed. And in that, our true purpose is revealed. The identity of Jesus is revealed, the glory of Jesus is revealed, and then we are given a purpose, and that is to glorify, honor, worship the King Jesus, that all of our life becomes oriented around Him, that we find meaning in our life through Him. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That means we, both our life not only, we're not just talking about future life like in, in heaven, all right? When, when we die, we have like fire insurance and we're not going to go to hell. I'm talking about we have life now. We have life now because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And life with Him is good. I didn't say easy, but it's good. And it's full. And it's, it, it, it is what brings peace and flourishing to our lives and to the world. So the glory of Jesus revealed and our purpose as humans is revealed to worship God. So let me ask you, who is Jesus to you? It's a question. When he came on the scene, he was disguised by people's expectations. He was, ex- he was disguised by people's hopes and dreams. And they placed upon him their hopes and their dreams. And they said, oh, I'm a zealot. So Jesus, the Messiah, you're a zealot, right? Like you want us to go get our swords and like take down the Roman guard and like cut their throats, right? Or the Pharisees are like, oh, I'm a Pharisee, so Jesus, the Savior of the world, you're a Pharisee, right? Like you want the world to come into conformity with Jewish law and that's where you're, gonna, that's where you're taking this thing, right? And whenever Jesus kind of didn't go the way, didn't fit the mold of the expectations of the people, um, they freaked out. And they resisted him and they rebelled against him. And that's why he ended up on a cross because he didn't fit their expectations. 
came against their expectations. And so that's something we've got to check into as people. We tend to worship God's made in our own image. We tend to love and follow Jesus in our own image. And so I'll say that, I mean, I tend to be uh, kind of a lover, not a fighter, all right? I tend to be kind of on the pacifist end of things. I'll, I'll say that right now. I'm not going to force anyone that way. Oh, I'll talk to you about it. But so I tend to see Jesus as like this super chill dude who, I'm not, he's not chill, but he's like, he's definitely not going to like go over and try to kill Saddam Hussein or something like that. I definitely don't think that. That's not how I see Jesus. So I tend to make Jesus like definitely see him in that way. Now, I think I'm right, and we'll talk about it. But now other people, uh, maybe on the uh, others, see, teen, seem to make Jesus into kind of like um, the poster child for the NRA, right? Like They're like, yeah, Jesus definitely wants you to be fully armed and definitely like had a few AK-47s under his robe. Like, so Jesus, we make Jesus in our own image, right? We tend to make Jesus in our own image. I got a cool picture here. Yeah, so we got, you know, different kinds of Jesus. We got hipster Jesus, right? We got lady Jesus with a beard. We've got, like, good job, Jesus. So we tend to make Jesus in our own image. And so we have to be careful about that. Now, it doesn't mean that different perspectives of Jesus... That, that we, we aren't right, but we have to realize that Jesus will challenge us. Jesus will challenge us. And what it really comes down to is, is Jesus someone you worship? Is Jesus someone you'll give your life to? And is Jesus someone you're, who isn't just kind of the stamp approval on the way that you're already living your life? Or are you willing to hear from Him, follow Him, and have your view and your way adjusted by Him. Because He's Lord. And He'll challenge the way that you think. And He'll offend you. And so, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead reveals Jesus uh, to be who He truly is, and He doesn't fit in any of our boxes. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead demands that we take Jesus on His terms and not on our own. Um, He's revealed to be the one before whom every person on earth will bow. And so let's start bowing now. And let's start learning now and start following now. So, do you worship Jesus or do you just kind of like Him? That's my question. Is He a good teacher to guide you or is He the source of all knowledge and the one who has authority over your life. Um, So we can tell a lot by who we worship or by what we worship by a few different things. I think real quickly, we can tell who we worship by where, what we spend our time on and who we spend our time on. We can tell who or what we worship by what we spend our money on. We can tell who or what we worship by what we invest our talents in, right? What we spend our time thinking about, what we spend our time working on. And so I just encourage you to take inventory of that. When you're making a big life decision or you're trying to even decide, you know, where to go for dinner, I don't know, 
whatever it is, whether it's like, who am I going to marry? Or what kind of job am I going to take? Or what's the next step? Or should I buy this or that? Um, Is your question, how is this going to affect me? Or is your question, how does this honor Jesus and carry forward the mission of God in the world? I think that question can be revealing to who Jesus is in our life. Are you thinking about how is this affecting me in my life or how is this propelling the mission of God, new creation in the world? So Jesus is revealed to be who he, who he is, and that is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, the one who makes all things new, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who made all things and the one who brings all things to their conclusion. That's who Jesus is. And as his identity is revealed, our identity is revealed, our purpose is revealed. That is to be worshipers and co-laborers with Jesus in this new earth. I'm going to stop there because it's hot and we've got more time next week. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are... um, faithful, that you're faithful in our lives and that you have said yes to the world. You've said yes to creation. you said yes to humanity. And we can't outrun that yes. And I pray, God, that those of us who are trying to outrun that will just turn and say yes to your yes rather than no to your yes. I pray, God, that we would believe that you're faithful no matter what we're going through, no matter what doubts we have. I pray that we would know that you are faithful, that you said what you meant, you meant what you said, and you're faithful 100%, and your resurrection is evidence of that fact. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, may we just not worship a Jesus made in our own image, but may we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to sing one more song, and and this song, I love it, um, and it'll get stuck in your head the rest of the week, but really, this moves us into the next piece of our time together where we're going to eat together, and and so there's room at the table, we're going to sing, and there's room for the table, and there's all my notes that I didn't say, Uh, there's room at the table for all, and what I want you to consider, let me turn that down a little bit. What I want you to consider is this, that we are forgiven people, and a forgiven people forgive people. And so when we come together to eat, we are saying we have been forgiven by Christ. We will come to the table and remember that Christ has forgiven us of much. And so because of that, we should be a forgiving people of one another. And so if you have anything against anyone else, you need to make it right before you come to the Lord's table. So you have a chance to prepare for that. You can call someone and talk to someone here, but make it right because we come to the Lord's table who forgave us everything. And because we're forgiven, we forgive.